0: 1 Peter chapter number 2. 1 Peter chapter number 2. And uh, man, what a blessing to be here. I think I've got this little clock on the pulpit, and it keeps getting set further and further forward. I don't know what that means. By the time I come up here, it's a few minutes faster. So I don't, I don't we'll just we'll just turn that over, and that way we won't have to worry about it. First Peter chapter number two, and uh, I'd like to begin reading in verse number one. Here's what we're gonna do tonight. We're gonna read a few verses here and and then we're going to do a little bit of talking about this and maybe a little bit of teaching about this and maybe a little bit of preaching about this. I don't know how that's going to go. Uh but there's a thought that the Lord's given me. I trust God will be honored in it. First Peter chapter 2, verse number 1, the word of God says, "Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby." If so be, ye have tasted That the Lord is gracious to whom coming as unto a living stone disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore, also it is contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious. He that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. Even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation of peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness, into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for your word. I pray that you'd use it in our hearts and minds and may Christ be magnified. Lord, he is that that precious foundation stone, Lord, that living stone through which we as lively stones gain our life and are given new life in him. I pray, Lord, that he would be glorified and magnified in everything that's said and may we be made more into his image, Lord. May we be drawn closer to you. And we'll be sure to thank you for it. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You know, to really understand uh, what's going on in 1 Peter chapter number 2, a person really has to almost go back to chapter number 1. Uh, the book of 1 and 2 Peter are part of a group of uh, epistles in the New Testament that are known as the Hebrew Christian epistles. And what that means is that they were written to uh, Jews that had believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we know that because chapter number one starts off this way. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Those are all Gentile nations. And he calls them strangers because in the lands that they are in, they are strangers. They're no longer in Jerusalem. They're not in Israel. And then he goes on to call them elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you and peace be multiplied. You know, Israel in the Bible is always called the elect of God. They were chosen of God. But you know, really what Peter's emphasizing there is not their status as a blood Jew, but rather uh, their status as a believer in Jesus Christ. He says they are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. But how did that happen in their life? Through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling. That sprinkling that's referenced has to do with consecration. In the Bible, when the blood is spoken of as dealing with your sin and my sin, the actual fact of it, it's always spoken of in a washing sense, never in a sprinkling sense. Uh, We're immersed in the blood of the Lord Jesus. That's why as a Baptist, we don't sprinkle, amen? Amen. Uh, We uh, we ain't worried about paying the water bill. Somebody say amen to that. We'll just go ahead and dunk you in the baptistry. Amen. Because that is scriptural. It pictures the death and burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus and our partaking. Uh, in that with him. But to a Jewish mind, when they spoke about sprinkling with blood, it had to do with consecration. You remember when the law was given in the Old Testament, after the law was read, Moses took a bunch of hyssop and dipped it in blood and then sprinkled the book of the law and sprinkled Israel, sprinkled the people with that blood. And it showed them as consecrated Unto God. Likewise, they would take the sprinkling of the water from the ashes of the red heifer and use it to sanctify a person that had been ceremonially unclean. Peter saying, Hey, listen, bless God. We are sprinkled with something better than the blood of bulls and of goats, with something better uh, than the ashes of a heifer. We're sprinkled with the blood of the Lord Jesus. And what made them as Jews consecrated to God in this New Testament dispensation of grace? was not their kinship to Abraham. It wasn't their participation in circumcision. But rather it's that they believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the foundation of their relationship. He goes on to develop this language. Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now he's talking about Jews having a hope in the Lord Jesus. God had already begotten them as a nation once. But now, through the cross of Calvary, they could be, just like a Gentile would be, born again, begotten again, given new life in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what were they begotten to? They were begotten unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The thing that they were looking for was not land, it was the Lord. It wasn't a place, it was the Messiah. It was new life in Him. And so he's pointing to the fact that they have a superlative relationship and standing in the Lord Jesus above what they had in Old Testament Judaism. Verse 4, he says, "...to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away." Uh, In other words, uh, not that their focus was upon this plot of land there in the Middle East, but rather that their inheritance was in the person of the Lord Jesus. And it says, "...reserved in heaven for you." In other words, the fact that one day will be made like unto Him and in His image. He says, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In other words, he says, now you are kept not by covenant commandments, not by uh, tangible, physical blood relationships, but you're kept by the power of God. Remember, these are people under severe and fierce persecution. They're living in Gentile lands under constant threat. They're not accepted by the Jews because they believed on Jesus Christ, but they're not accepted by the Gentiles because they're still Jews. And now these are people that are sort of an island unto themselves. And he reminds them that they are being kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In other words, the culmination or the evidence, the manifestation of the salvation of God in the life of the believer won't truly be exemplified, won't really be manifest until one day when we are with Him in glory and one day when we come back to this earth with a glorified body in all of His glory, then that salvation that He's provided for us will be manifest. And likewise, all that He had planned for the Jewish nation, though they had rejected Christ as the Messiah, He's saying now through grace you can know Him in a greater way and that salvation will be manifest. He says wherein He greatly rejoiced though now for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptations. He says, you know, you believed on the Messiah... You've abandoned uh the, the cultural uh, environment that you've been raised in. You've walked away from the faith of your fathers as they regard it and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And now for a period of time, you find yourself as he would later on t- call them strangers and pilgrims, as a people that's caught between two worlds. You can't go back home to your Jewish life. You can't go out into a Gentile world. Now, if need be, ye are for a season in manifold temptations that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. He's saying right now you are lightly regarded by man, but one of these days when Christ appears, it's going to be evident that you've made the right decision in believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, ye love, in whom though now ye see him not yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable, And full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. You know the Jewish nation. The the design and idea behind God's revelation to them as a people was that it would it would reach its apex. It would culminate in the revelation of the Messiah to them, and that they would believe on that Messiah and have their sins forgiven, be pardoned, have Him as their King. Uh, they unfortunately, as a people, rejected Him, nailed Him to a cross, scorned Him, spurned Him, uh, criticized Him, uh, and, uh, and 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 crucified Him. But He says, you know, all that God had ever hoped and anticipated for Israel as a nation, you as believers in Jesus Christ are now realizing that the end of your faith, what was the purpose of it all? The salvation of your souls. He goes on, we could spend a lot of time, he says, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently. Now that's not language you'd use to a Gentile, he's talking to Jews. He's saying the Old Testament prophets, they inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. He says, in other words, they were looking forward to this suffering Messiah who would die on the cross, be raised from the dead, and provide salvation for you as a people. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. The Old Testament prophets, they caught glimpses of this suffering Messiah but they didn't know when He was going to come. Uh, That's the reason the Bible says the Old Testament patriarch, these all died in the faith, not having received the promises that were given unto them, but having seen them afar off. The Old Testament prophets, they saw Isaiah 53, the suffering Messiah. They saw in the book of Psalms uh, when it was said in Psalms 22, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from my roaring? They saw these glimpses of a suffering Messiah. But they didn't know when that would happen. They've looked these things up. They've tried to find it. They've searched it out. But it says in verse 12, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves... But unto us, he's talking about Jews alive in that day, unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. In other words, he's saying to these Jewish believers, they were looking forward to a day when Jews could know God personally through His Son Jesus Christ. They were looking to this day, he said. I would just say this, we're still in that dispensation of grace. They were looking forward to this day that we're living in as well. It says in verse 13, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now he's not saying hope to be saved. But he's saying, continue to follow God. Don't give up on the Lord Jesus Christ. Continue to trust in Him that one of these days that grace is going to be manifest, that your choice in believing in Jesus Christ will be vindicated. As obedient children, he says, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as He which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, he invokes an Old Testament scripture here, be ye holy, for I am holy. And he says, and if you call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold. Now we think of silver and gold as associated with pagan temples. But he's talking about the Jewish temple. Remember that gold trimmed everything within the Old Testament temple. Remember that silver was used. It was the redemption metal used to represent the redemption of God. The children of Israel paid for their redemption in silver when they came over the Red Sea. He says you weren't redeemed with these corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversations received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. In other words, you've been given something far greater in the Lamb of God, that sacrifice that never has to be repeated, that was all sufficient, that made the way for you to know God, who verily was foreordained. And that was news to them. Uh, they sort of viewed Calvary as an audible, you know, <laughs> like God was just rescuing from from the trash heap of failure His redemptive plan. But Peter says, no, my friend, it was always God's intention that Christ through His rejection would go to the cross of Calvary, die for your sins, die for my sins. He was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you who by Him do believe in God that raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory that your faith and hope might be In God, he says, seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that you love one another with a pure heart, fervently being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. You notice his emphasis on the word of God here. He says, my problem is not with the Old Testament scripture and truth. He said, my problem is uh, with the rabbinical twisting of it that's taking place. Throughout the years. He's saying the problem isn't the word of God, the, the Word of God's the incorruptible seed through which we're born again. But he's saying you need to get back to the truth of the Word of God. You need to latch on to the truth of the Word of God. He says, For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass, the grass withereth, and the flower thereof fadeth away, falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And he says, This is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. He said, Preacher, that's interesting. What does that have to do with me? Well Understanding the context of the book of 1 Peter uh, is key to understanding chapter number 2. He's writing to Jewish believers, people that have been raised in Judaism. They thought they had a concept and understanding of who God was. Some of it undoubtedly was true, but some of it had been shaped by the traditions of men. He called that out just a moment ago. He said, uh, not by vain conversation received from traditions of men. A lot of what they knew of God and perceived of God was polluted by the thoughts and ideas of men. But now they believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. They've been given new birth. And now they find themselves, as I said earlier, adrift between these two worlds. And what he's encouraging and exhorting them to do is go back to a basic fundamental understanding of some truths of the Word of God. It's in that context to these Jewish believers that he says, hey, listen, wherefore laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies, and all in evil speakings as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. I want to preach to you for a moment tonight on the sincere milk of the word. Getting back to a biblical understanding of some fundamental truths in our life. Now, I understand this is written to Jewish believers in the early New Testament in the first century. I've spent a great deal of time emphasizing that. Uh, But I would say this, that just as they had a concept and perspective on God that had sadly been shaped by the traditions and thoughts and ideas of men. Things not, And when I say that, I'm not talking about Old Testament revelation. I'm talking about things that were globbed on and patched on and scabbed on to Old Testament revelation. I'm talking about all of the oral traditions they had and all of the rabbinical teachings that they had that had all these wonky ideas of who the Messiah was can I say that we live in a day, likewise, where often we lose sight of what the clear biblical teaching is about some fundamental things. I think sometimes in our life, just as in their life, it's uh, necessary to call us back to a, a sincere, fundamental understanding of the truth of God's word. I want you to notice a few things in this text and, and we'll teach and preach a little bit maybe and then we'll close. Notice first off in verse number one, he exhorts them to the talk of graciousness. He says, wherefore laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings. Now, why didn't he write this to these individuals? Remember, these are Jews living in a Gentile world. And it's not uh, a surprise to you. You've probably uh, been around the teaching of the Word of God enough and, and, and have been around uh, what the Word of God says about this enough to know that Jews at this time in history, they had a derogatory view of the Gentile world. They viewed Gentiles as dogs. They use that language. You remember this is exemplified in John chapter number four. Whenever the Lord Jesus turns aside to witness to this Samaritan woman, Samaritans were half breed individuals, half Jew, half Gentile. They were a product of the uh, Syrian uh, Assyrian invasion of the northern ten tribes, and so Jews regarded them as second class, as lesser individuals. And you find this same attitude pervasive all throughout the book of Acts. And evidently, even when Peter writes this letter, there was a tendency in them to view the world as being a two-tiered system, as Jews and Gentiles. And he says to them they need to be reminded that the cross of Calvary leveled all of that. It's not about Jew and Gentile anymore. It's neither circumcision or uncircumcision, but a new creature in Christ Jesus. We need to be reminded in our lives that at the end of the day, what matters in regards to a person standing with God Uh, Is not their bank account. It's not their ethnicity. It's not their cultural background, but rather it's whether they believed on and received the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how God views the world. There's still two groups of people in the world, but it's not Jews and Gentiles. Rather, it's those that are saved and those that are lost that have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he mentions a tactic for growth here in verse 2. He says what you have to do is remind yourself that you don't know everything. And as newborn babes, Desire, and notice this language carefully, the sincere milk of the word. Now, when we think of milk, we're thinking of that which, of course, you know, if a mother is feeding her child, it's all of the nutrients, all of the the nourishment that that child needs. But beyond that, it's all of that consolidated down into one form and delivered in an effective way. What he's reminding, and listen, there's a lot of things you need to know in this Bible. There's no part of it that's more important than any other part of it. It's all the inspired Word of God. There are, however, some fundamental things that shape our understanding of who God is and our relationship to Him. And here's what Peter's advice is to them. Instead of imagining that as a full-grown adult you know everything, instead as a newborn babe, you ought to search the Word of God to seek out the basic fundamental understanding of what the Bible teaches. You know, the sad truth today is we have become connoisseurs of the abstract and the obscure. And oftentimes have a very, very reckless understanding of the fundamental in the Word of God. Now, I'm not saying the abstract and the obscure is not important. One of my favorite things to do is dig in the Bible, find somebody, something that nobody knows what it means, and try to see if me and the Holy Ghost can get, get alone and, and find an opinion about it. Amen. I, I'm not opposed to that, but I am saying this, that oftentimes we view the Word of God as a hobbyist. We pursue the things that are of interest to us and oftentimes neglect to have a basic fundamental understanding of what the Word of God teaches. He says we ought to desire the sincere milk of the Word. In other words, that as we pursue it, we ought to pursue it in sincerity and understanding that the Word of God is an earnest book. God is not playing games. God did not give us a puzzle book. He gave us a revelation of Himself. And so God desires for us to know who He is. And we learn who He is by the study of His Word. This is sincere milk. It can be trusted. It can be leaned upon. When a child is feeding uh, at its mother, it doesn't second guess what it's being fed. Uh, It does not say, that's not what I'm interested in. It doesn't say, do you have a different flavor? Amen. Instead, It just eats what's provided for it. Well, as we study the Word of God, instead of trying to twist it and mold it and shape it and tie it in knots to make it fit our perspective, we ought to say, what does the Bible teach? What's God trying to say as we study it? We see a tactic for growth. Only by learning what God said will we grow. Only I'm going to say that again. Only by learning what God said and taught and meant and intended will we grow. Uh, boutique perspectives and opinions of the Word of God, whatever value they may hold, are not the sincere milk whereby we grow. Rather, it's a clear understanding of what the Bible teaches. So I see a tactic for growth here, and then I see the taste of grace that's mentioned in verse 3. He says, If so be you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Now that taste of grace he's talking about is salvation. He's writing to Jewish believers that have believed on the Lord, and he's saying, Is it good? <laughs> well, the answer is yes, it's good. He's saying, if it's good, then you ought to come back for more. In other words, don't abandon your profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Instead, double down, dig in, dive in to the truth, the word of God. We sadly are plagued in modern day Christianity with an attitude and perspective that if, if, if I get my ticket to heaven, man, I'm OK. That's all it's about. And there could not be a more anti-scriptural attitude uh, about salvation. Now, I I will agree to you that my going to heaven is not predicated on me holding out or hanging in or digging in or hanging low or jumping high or doing anything else. It's based on the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ. He promised he'd save me. I believed on that. And he keeps his promises. But if you think that God saved us just so then we could sit back and stare at our ticket and say, well, boy, I'm glad I ain't going to hell and never do another thing for him. I'm sorry you're mistaken. Hey, if you've tasted that he's good, if you've tasted that he's gracious, if you really love the Word of God, it ought to make you want to dig in and study. So we see this as sort of an introduction. And he then begins to disclose four basic truths that every believer needs to understand. I'm probably not going to tell you anything you don't already know, but maybe we'll look at it in a perspective that you've not thought of. Because that's really what this is. He's he's encouraging them to have an originalist, revised perspective. And what I mean by that is he's saying instead of viewing things through the prism of your experience, instead of viewing things through the prism, hey listen, something that help all of us, you ought to sometime try to read this Bible like you've never read it before. <laughs> Put away all the commentary. Listen, I got so many commentaries on my shelf, every one of them has a bookmark about 12 pages in. <laughs> I got, I got, I mean I got commentaries, I've got resources, I've got all those things, and I'm not against them. But I'm saying it'd help us every now and then to put all that away, get us King James Bible with the text on the page and read it as though we've never read it before. And just learn, what does God say? That's really what he's advocating. He's saying instead of viewing everything through the prism of what you've been brought up being taught, instead you ought to just read it as God wrote it and gave it to us. And he's saying as you do that, you'll come back to a, an originalist, and what I mean by, I'm not talking about original texts or documents, I'm talking about going back to what the Bible teaches about some fundamental things. So notice them with me. The first thing he mentions is a revised perspective on the Savior of God's plan of redemption. Verse number four, he says, to whom? Coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Now, there's a lot of things we could say about the Lord Jesus and we would never be exhausted. We could spend the rest of our days here just talking about the Lord Jesus and we would have never talked about him enough. But in this verse, we have three basic things that are noted about the Savior. Number one, he is a resurrected Savior. He is called here a living stone. Now, a stone in the Jewish mind had a lot of significance. One thing they'd think about when they thought about a stone is they'd think about that rock that followed them in the wilderness. And indeed, Paul had revealed to them that that rock was a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, that Christ was that rock following them through the wilderness. But then in this context, in this stone that's spoken of distinctly, they would have thought of a building item. You remember whenever uh, they were uh, walking outside of the temple in Jerusalem right before the Lord's death, uh, that uh, the Lord Jesus looked at the, the people that were following him and, and uh, he was talking to them about the basis of their relationship with God. And they said, we be children of Abraham. We were never in bondage. We be children of Abraham. And the Lord looked at the temple. He pointed at the stones and he said, I am able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. What he meant prophetically concerning that was that this temple one day will be torn down. But another temple is going to be built. It's going to be a spiritual temple that you and I are all fitly framed in. And I'm going to make new believers, new Christians, and they will be the habitation of God. So there's more going on than just merely him pointing out that their relationship, their kinship to Abraham was not a basis for a relationship with God. But the reason when he pointed at those stones, they understood them in the context of the temple. When it says that he is a living stone, what it's reminding us of is that he is the living embodiment of and habitation of God. One of the things that I was mentioning this, I don't know, I I talk and preach a lot. Sometimes I lose track of when I say things. I might have said it in Sunday school. I might have just been talking to myself in the shower. I don't know. But at some point, I was talking to somebody, not in the shower. I'm Well, we're not going to go there anyway. Is that how it feels, Jim, when you go, when you go off the rails? Whew, that's rough. We need to give you a raise, don't we? But I was, I was making mention of the fact that, that little often is made of the resurrection as we give the gospel. We talk much about the death uh, of the Lord Jesus, the vicarious substitutionary death that He died in our place. And I'm not in any way suggesting that we shy away from emphasizing that. But if you really look at the thing that was spoken of the most, in the, uh, in, the, in the book of Acts. It was not the death. Lots of people have died. But rather it was the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. The Bible talks about how that they thought Paul was a preacher of strange gods because he preached unto them the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. The key message was always that he is a living Savior. He is a risen Savior. Could it be so many struggle with assurance of their salvation because it is not vividly emblazoned on their mind that there is a living Savior seated at the right hand of the Father who is our advocate, our mediator, our intercessor, and that our relationship with God is not predicated on whether we cried enough or whether we whispered the right words or whether we had the great emotional show that people might expect, but rather it's predicated on the fact that we have a living Savior that's alive right now that promised He'd save us and He is immutable and He is invincible and He is eternal and He keeps His promises and He's at the right hand of the Father. He is interceding for us. He's a resurrected Savior. This would have been something that though they may have understood, in in a sense, He emphasizes. He wants them to be reminded that the Lord Jesus is not just the long perished leader of a cult or of a religious movement, but rather He is the living Savior alive even right now. And He is the very embodiment of God to mankind. He's a resurrected Savior, but then notice he's a rejected Savior. He's disallowed indeed of men. This language means to set aside. In fact, the Lord Jesus spoke about uh, the, the idea of a stone in the building of a building being set aside and discarded and thrown away and cast on the trash heap. And he would go on to tell them that the stone that the builder disallowed the same as made the head of the corner. That's what Peter's talking about here. He's talking about how Uh, They rejected the Lord Jesus because they didn't see Him as fitting in with their concept of who the Messiah should be. But one of these days they're going to realize the reason He didn't fit no place in the wall is He ain't supposed to be in the wall. He's supposed to be at the top of the building. He's the head of the corner. He's He's the Messiah. He's the God of gods and the King of kings. But that language suggests the idea of setting to the side, putting to the side. And they were being reminded that in the day that they were living in, when the majority of the Jewish nation was rejecting the Messiah, this was not something that was unexpected. Can I say that in the day that we're living in, in this Gentile world, the fact that he's hated, the fact that he's rejected, the fact that he is disallowed of men, Uh, That's no indication that the plan of God has failed, nor is it any indication that the Savior of God uh, is not who He says He is. Uh, He told us that the world would hate Him, would reject Him. We get so discomfited at the fact that the world is not thrilled to death at us being Christians. Nowhere does the Bible say that the world will be thrilled at us being Christians. In fact, they hated our Christ so much they nailed Him to a cross. But to the Jewish believers in the first century, he's reminding them that it was always in the mind and knowledge of God that the Jewish nation would reject him, that he would be set aside and disallowed indeed of men. But notice what it says at the end, but chosen of God and precious. So he's a resurrected Savior. He's a rejected Savior. Bless the Lord. He's a regarded Savior when it comes to God's opinion. He's a revered Savior when it comes to God's opinion. The world may reject him, but he is indeed chosen of God. and He is indeed precious. We need to be reminded that the Lord Jesus Christ, He is God's choice of mode and means for mankind to know Him and to get to heaven. There is no other. God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save them that would perish. Well, what are we preaching? We're preaching the cross of Christ, which is an offense to them which perish, but it's precious to us. Amen. Uh, We need to be reminded that irrespective of the world's opinions about the Lord Jesus, God's opinion of Him does not change. God is not taking a straw poll. God is not trying to uh, send out a a, a, uh, focus group to figure out how the world feels about the Lord Jesus Christ. Really, to be very frank about it, God doesn't have much interest in how the world as far as a culture and a system feels about the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows who Christ is. He loves Christ. He's chosen of God. And He is precious. Though the world may view Him Uh, as being worthy of the trash heap. We know he's worthy of the throne of God and the throne of our heart. He is a precious Savior. So we see a word about the Savior of God's plan of redemption. And then we see a word about the structure in God's plan of redemption. Notice what he says, verse 5. Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. In other words, in the Old Testament, much was focused on the structure of the Old Testament temple. Uh, It was the very centerpiece of Jewish religious life. Remember that these believers are scattered. They are in Gentile lands. Uh, They have no ability. At that time, the temple in Jerusalem did still stand. They had no ability to go back there and to offer a sacrifice, to worship God, uh, to partake in a feast. They were stuck, scattered uh, strangers in these Gentile lands. And he reminds them that after Calvary, the place of God's dwelling changed from being that temple in Jerusalem to now being his very people who are the temple of God. Uh, notice the form of this structure. He says, as lively stones. Now, where would we just read that? Didn't we just read that? Well, in verse 4, it says, Jesus is a living stone. Uh, So he's the living stone, we're the lively stone. What's the difference between the two? Well, for him, his life is nascent to himself. It's sourced in himself. He is life. He's the way, the truth, and the life. We are lively stones, meaning we have gained our life from him. And now that life that lives in him now lives in us. And we are small representations. We are carbon copies, one could say of that living stone. So we are now lively stones. And notice what He does with us. He builds us up a spiritual house. I like what Brother Fred said about church. You know, uh, the building is not what constitutes the church. It's the people that constitutes the church. Uh, the Bible's very clear that uh, the church is, is not a place but rather it is a people. Uh, It it is not an organization, but rather it is an organism. So when a person gets born again, God takes that person and joins them together with other believers in a locale and they are built up a spiritual house. Now a house is a place where somebody lives. Well, where does God live? He lives in the hearts and lives of His people. He says, where two or more gather together in my name, there will I be. So we see that they're built up a spiritual house. But then He says in holy priesthood, So in other words, the administrators of worship on this earth now are no longer Old Testament Levitical priests, nor have they ever been uh, corrupted Roman Catholic priests, uh, but rather it's born-again, blood-washed believers. Every single believer is a priest unto God, meaning we don't have to go through a human priest to get to God. All we have to do is go through our high priest to get to God. Uh, Who's our high priest? Well, Jesus Christ. He's the great apostle and high priest of our profession. So we see the form of this structure. It's not tangible, it's not physical, but it's a spiritual house. It's some holy priesthood. What's the function of this structure? To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Hey, God is not interested in blood sacrifices anymore. He got the last one that He wanted. He got the only one that He really wanted And he's not interested in any of them anymore. So now the sacrifices that we give are not given to gratify some temporal means, but they are spiritual sacrifices. We sacrifice our time and our talents, our treasures, the praise of our lips, the devotion of our heart. And that's what we offer to God now. That's what He's pleased with now. These are acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. He's the foundation of this structure. Verse 6, Wherefore, also it is contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, Precious. By the way, you know in the Old Testament, I've said this before, but I'll say it again. In the Old Testament, uh, the word elect is used of Israel as a nation, but it's not used of individuals. There's only one place where the word elect is used of an individual. This messes with the, the, the Calvinists, so I like to say it. There's only one place that the word elect is used of an individual. That's in the book of Isaiah when it talks about mine elect. That's a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. So all these people that say, well, I'm elect of God, I'm elect of God, I'm elect of God... The Jewish nation is elect temporally, humanly, earthly speaking. But the only person that is spiritually elect is the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're going to say, but preacher, there's times that the Bible says that we are elect as believers in the New Testament. That's exactly right. Because when you and I got born again, we got placed in Christ. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So in other words, if we are elect and if you're born again, you're elect. But you know why you're elect? Not because God looked down from heaven, he is picking out a baseball team and thought you could field uh, uh you know a fly ball. He listen, rather because you chose to place your faith in Jesus Christ. And when you did that, you got placed in Christ, and he's the one that is elect. He's elect and he's precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Notice that we offer these spiritual sacrifices by Jesus Christ. He's the foundation of the structure in this New Testament dispensation of grace. Everything ought to be built on Him. And everything that we do ought to be based upon Him, both as His example, but also at His empowerment. In other words, we're doing it at His direction, at His leading, trying to be like Jesus Christ. So we see the structure in God's plan. And then we see the scoffers at God's plan. Verse number 7, Unto you, therefore, which believe, He is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense even to them which stumble at the word being disobedient whereunto also they were appointed. Now I know we use this to talk about Gentiles that reject the Lord Jesus Christ, but that's really not what Peter's talking about here. He's talking about Israel as a nation. And he mentions here their scoffers, their scornful feelings, their scornful perspective. You know, I'm sure Jews living at this time were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why is it that we see that He's the Messiah, but they don't see that He's the Messiah? Now, the book of Romans teaches us that there is a blindness, a judicial blindness, that blindness in part hath happened unto Israel. And uh, 1 Corinthians tells us that when they read Moses, there's a veil over their eyes in the reading of Moses. And what he's pointing to here is that though to you the Lord Jesus is precious, that's because you believe. To those that are disobedient, won't believe in God, uh, they don't regard Him as precious. He is disallowed unto them. Uh, In other words, no matter how much we love Him and how much we see that He's the Messiah, there will always be some that choose to reject Him and don't understand why we believe on Him any more than we understand why they reject Him. There were scoffers in that day. There's scoffers in this day. He speaks of their scornful feelings. Verse 8, He speaks of their stumbling feet. says that He's made unto them the head of the corner. Can I just say this? You don't have to believe in Jesus to have to answer to Him one day. Those that reject Him, He's still made the head of the corner to them as well. (laughs) He's the chief cornerstone to us, but He's the head of the corner to them. But one way or another, you're going to have to deal with Him. You're going to have to deal with Him. He says He's made the head of the corner, but not only that, He's made a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. In other words, when they, he says, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient. When they read through the Old Testament, they thought they had this whole plan figured out. They thought they understood everything about the structure of God. Then they come across Isaiah 53, and they said, now who is this suffering Messiah? Where did he come from? They saw, they understood what David was writing about in the book of Psalms. Then they come to those messianic Psalms and they say, who is this one uh, that would be rejected by his uh, his own people? Who is this one whose own familiar friend lifted up his heel against him? Who is this one uh, that God has forsaken in his moment of despair? Who is this holy one uh, that God will not suffer to see corruption? Who is this one that is the son of David but is the Lord of David? They couldn't understand who he was. Because they were not willing to accept in faith who he was, they stumbled at that fact. And it knocked out a kilter their entire perspective on God's plan of redemption. He was a stone of stumbling. Because they would not accept him, they had to change what the Word of God taught to allow their belief system to exist. He is a stone of stumbling. Why? Because he's a rock of offense. It was offensive to them. Their entire concept of their relationship with God was based upon the notion that the blood running through their veins made them fit to God. Now they find out that it ain't the blood running through anybody's veins that makes them fit to God. Uh, It's the blood running through the veins of the Lord Jesus Christ that makes us fit before God. And now all of a sudden, this whole concept they had of, you know, we're, we're, we're an elect people. We're a special people. We believed on, on, on the God of the Old Testament. We're children of Abraham. Now all of a sudden, here comes the sign. He's saying unto them, Hey, you say that you're the children of Abraham, but before Abraham was, I am. I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. If you reject me, uh, you're not a child of Abraham. Abraham uh, looked to see my day and rejoiced to see my day. He's saying, you reject me. You're rejecting God himself. And because they wouldn't accept that, they stumbled. Even to them which stumble at the word. And why did this happen? Because they were disobedient. It was not because they could not see it. It was because they were unwilling to see it. It was not because they lacked the capacity of faith to believe, but rather it was because it disrupted their concept of who God was and they were unwilling to set aside their concept of who God was to believe who God truly is. And you know what they become? We see their sad fulfillment. It says, whereunto also they were appointed. Now nowhere here is God saying that this individual Jew or that individual Jew was chosen to reject Jesus Christ. That's not what it says. It says, whereunto they were appointed. Why were they appointed? Because they were disobedient. It did not surprise God that the Jewish nation rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. It had been prophesied that they would reject the Lord Jesus Christ. But no individual had to be complicit in that. And even Paul says that in the book of 1 Corinthians. He says there's a veil over their eyes in the reading of Moses. But hey, bless God, that veil can be taken away in Christ. Even to this day, the Jewish nation is still in judicial blindness. But even to this day, any individual Jew that believes on the Lord Jesus Christ can be born again and saved by the grace of God. But it was undoubtedly scriptural that there would be a group that that generation would would reject him. The sad truth is that they were willing to play that role. A great many of them were. You know, here's a a, maybe a New Testament perspective on that. You know, the Bible says uh, that narrow is the way that leadeth to everlasting life. Few there be that find it Uh, that, uh, you know, uh, that broad is the way that leadeth to destruction and many there be that go therein. Who is it that goes through which one? Well, it's whoever either decides to believe on the Lord Jesus and go through that narrow path or reject Him and go through that broad path. Hey, somebody's going to die and go to hell, but it ain't got to be you. Somebody's going to die and go to hell, but it don't have to be you. And it doesn't have to be any distinct individual person, but it's according to what they do with Jesus Christ. And then finally, and we're done tonight, is it still tonight? Have we rolled over into the new day? Look at verse number 9. We see the splendor of God's plan. He says, but ye. In other words, there is that group that had rejected him, that had scorned him, that had hated him. But that's not who Peter was writing to. He was writing to those Jews that had believed on them. and Of them, he says, ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, an holy nation, a peculiar people. Notice here, he describes their new privilege. He describes them in more glowing ways than Abraham could have ever dreamed or imagined. He says about them, they believed that they were a chosen people. He says, you're more than a chosen people. You're a chosen generation within a chosen people. He says you're part of that group that would be present when the Messiah would come and would be rejected and you are now a special group of people because you are that faithful remnant that has chosen to believe on him. He calls him a royal priesthood. Man, this is, this is interesting, isn't it? You know, in the whole of the Old Testament, there's only one royal priest and that's Melchizedek. It was forbidden in the Old Testament for a king to be a priest or a priest to be a king. It was considered too much of a consolidation of power. Uh, But the only person in the Old Testament that was a king and a priest was Melchizedek. He was the king of Salem. He was the priest of the Most High God. Now he says of every believer. And he's speaking of these Jews in particular that have been born again, that they are a royal priesthood. Now, how did that happen? Uh, men were made in the Old Testament priests by one of two things. They were either made a priest by virtue of their blood, their lineage. But that was not a continuing priesthood, the book of Hebrews says. But there's another way a man could be made a priest. The same way that, eight, or that Melchizedek was made a priest, he was confirmed by an oath, the book of Hebrews says, uh, that uh, I swear uh, that uh, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In other words, Melchizedek became a priest by the declared express revelation of God. That same declared express revelation of God certified the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know how you and I got born again? By the declared express revelation of God. Born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. In other words, we're not a priest after the Levitical priesthood. They weren't royal priests, but we are a priest after that uh, priesthood of Christ, that Melchizedek priesthood. He calls them a holy nation. You know, in Israel's history, they had always been a nation, mostly been a nation, (laughs) but they had never been a holy nation. But now they were a holy nation. They were peculiar people. They were given a new privilege. They were given a new purpose. What was their purpose now? That you should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness. Isn't that interesting? He's talking to Jews here. And he's talking about their form of Christless Old Testament worship. And he says that is darkness. And we would all accept that pagan uh, idolatry is darkness. But he's talking about a Christless form of Judaism. He says that's darkness. Called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. In other words, the reason you and I exist is to show that God can save people. He can save them today just as He's always saved them. And then finally, and I'm done, verse 10, we see they were a new people, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Isn't that interesting language? Uh, the fact that it's laid in juxtaposition to the mercy of God tells us that when He speaks of them not being a people, He's not talking about Abraham prior to the call of God in, in Genesis chapter number 12. He's talking about Israel as a nation prior to Calvary. And He says before that time, you were not a people. Now what does that mean when He says not a people? Certainly they were a people. Certainly they were a nation. But in regards to God, uh, the blood running through their veins, the the, the uh, biological uh, nature of their existence never curried them favor with God. It was never that that made a Jew save. The fact that he had blood running through his veins never made him righteous before God. It was always by faith that righteousness was imputed unto them. And he's saying that's not changed. Even to this day, you weren't a people, but now because of the mercy of God, you are a people, You say, preacher, that's interesting, but what does it say to me as a Gentile? <laughs> I'm not a Jew. Uh, you probably aren't either. But what does it say to us as Gentiles? Well, it says, says this to us. One, we need to get back to a fundamental understanding of the Word of God. But two, the very same things that apply to them as a people have a parallel to us as Gentiles as well. We have a good, glorious, precious Savior And we need to be sharing the truth about Him everywhere that we go. As we do that, there's going to be scoffers that reject Him. Don't get discouraged when they do. Be reminded that when you got born again, you got part of a spiritual house, planted, mortared in, placed right where God would have you to be. And listen, it is a precious thing to be a child of God. It's no small thing. It's no mean thing to be part of this royal priesthood, this peculiar people, this holy nation that we are now. Uh, We, in other words, ought to seek to live up to the glorious standard that has been set for us. Let's bow together tonight. The musician comes to play. The altar is open. And I don't know what God may have said to you this evening. I told you he was going to do a little talking and teaching and preaching. But I would imagine that somewhere within that, there was opportunity for the Holy Spirit of God to deal with your heart. Maybe there's some area of your life where you've not been living up to the standard of what it means to be a Christian. Maybe there's some area of your life where you've not been sharing passionately, fervently enough, the glorious truth that God has revealed in His Word. Or maybe in your life there's some area of disobedience where the Lord Jesus, as opposed to being a precious friend, as opposed to being a foundation stone, in your relationship it's become a stumbling block, a rock of offense, a wedge in your relationship with Him. Whatever it is, got news for you. He's ready to meet you at this altar and deal with it in His grace and mercy. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus with